Luke chapter 11. And even though we finished with uh, verse 27 last week, Alice is going to read from verse 27 of chapter 11 in Luke, page 736 in the Red Pew Bible. So starting at verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. So see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the whole world is in your hands. and We thank you that you are in control and uh, that you've shown your control uh, through the ministry and the resurrection of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. Father, we uh, pray now that you'd be working in us, helping us to focus on the things that your word is saying, that uh, we would live lives that are worthy of you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all love stories about miracles, don't we? Events which, according to the laws of nature, just should not happen. Although it's interesting that uh, they're always good events, aren't they? If there was an event that uh, was really bad, that wasn't according to the laws of nature... I'm not sure we'd call that a miracle. Uh, For many people, miracles seem to be the thing that they want in order to vindicate their their faith. Uh, Whether it's uh, people flocking to statues of Mary, where Mary allegedly weeps, where the statue weeps, uh, sometimes tears of blood or tears of perfume. And there are many reports people alleging that this sort of thing happens in different parts of the world. Or more commonly, it's church meetings, church meetings where it's claimed that miracles will happen, Uh, miracles are promised, especially miracles of healing. It seems that every generation of Christians, uh, there, there are those who are claimed to be specially anointed Uh, in order to perform miracles, uh, anointed in ways that other ordinary Christians are not anointed. And people flock to them, don't they? It's it's hard to get 
a big crowd of people to come along to a meeting to hear uh, the gospel being preached. But when miracles are on offer, it's a different story. Uh, I remember once attending a meeting in Sydney where uh, miracles were promised and I wasn't the only one there. There was 10,000 other people who turned up. And at one level, we can understand this great interest in miracles. People do appreciate some uh, supernatural evidence uh, that validates the, the reality of, uh, of God uh, in the world and God in their lives. And in the Bible, um, <clears throat> miracles are often called signs because they signal something to us about God. The question really is, is it right for us to be seeking after and craving after miraculous signs from God in our generation? Now, of course, sometimes people want to see a miraculous sign simply because they want to test God. Uh, for example, someone might say to you, if God were to perform a miracle for me, then I will believe. And sometimes they might be genuine in this. Uh, although for others it might actually be an excuse for unbelief. Uh, for even if God did do a miracle, uh, they would simply find another excuse to not believe. And it's this attitude of unbelief which Jesus encountered in our passage today, which is in uh, Luke chapter 11, if you want to have that open in front of you. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, as it, uh, in verse 29, as the, the crowds have increased, Jesus makes a somewhat um, sharp statement. Uh, he speaks of the crowds and he says, this is a wicked generation. Do you see that in verse 29? This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign but no sign shall be given except the sign of Jonah. That's, a, that's strong language, isn't it? Wicked generation. Why, why would Jesus call these people wicked? I mean, that's strong language, isn't it? Remember last week's passage, uh, which uh, Peter preached for us. Jesus had driven out a demon from a, a man who was mute and people had seen this. They'd seen this demon being driven out. How did they respond? Do you remember? There were two, there were, some people responded by dismissing uh, what he was doing by saying that he was actually empowered by the evil one, by Beelzebul, the, the prince of demons. But then there were others who said, well, in verse 16, um, why don't you provide us with another sign from heaven? Uh, and then maybe we'll believe. Uh, now, what had they just seen? They had just seen a demon being driven out. Uh, on top of that, uh, there were all of the other miracles which Jesus had been performing and which were well re reported, uh, such as healing the sick, driving out many other demons, uh, controlling nature, calming the, the wind and the storm, the, the waves, and even raising the dead. And yet, what they're saying is that that's not enough. <laughs> that's not enough. It's as if those miracles don't cut it. If you want us to really believe in you, 
Give us another sign from heaven. And Jesus says no. To this wicked, that's why they're wicked. They're not believing the signs that they've already been given. But did you notice that uh, Jesus does actually pr- promise that he will give them a sign? Uh, and that is in, in verse 30. Uh, Jesus says that just as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. He's going to give them the sign of Jonah. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is where we go back to our Old Testament, isn't it? And we all love the story of of Jonah. Uh, Jonah was a missionary. Jonah was God's missionary to the the city of Nineveh, which uh, was the capital city of Assyria. It was actually destroyed in about 612 BC, which means that the events that are recorded for us in the book of Jonah happened sometime before 612 BC. And uh, these days, you can go to Nineveh. You may not want to go to Nineveh. It's in Iraq and it lies in ruins. Uh, There is actually a hill there. It's more of a mound, which is called uh, Nabi Yunus, which means uh, the prophet Jonah. How about that Uh, in Nineveh today? Now, these are Assyrians. The Assyrians were not noted for their godliness. Uh, the Assyrians were, were very, uh, very ungodly people. They did dreadful things, absolutely shocking things to the people around them, uh, including God's people, Israel. And that may partly explain why Jonah actually didn't want to go to Nineveh. He did not want to warn them of the impending judgment of God And so even though God told him to go to Nineveh and to warn them of the judgment, what did Jonah do? He he got on a ship that was heading the other direction. And you know the story, don't you? Jonah was uh, thrown off the ship uh, into the water. But in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, listen to what, what it says. It says, But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Then it goes on to say that that at the Lord's command, the fish vomited Jonah onto dry ground and not as a corpse, but as a living, breathing, very much an alive person. And it was after that um, dramatic experience that uh, Jonah decided he would obey God and he went to Nineveh. Now, why do people have trouble believing that uh, this is not just a myth? Why do people have trouble believing that it actually happened? That's a simple answer really, isn't it? Uh, You don't get swallowed whole by a large fish and stay for three days in its belly and survive. That doesn't happen you tend to get digested or suffocated or drowned. or It's a bit like someone being executed and then being buried and then three days later coming back to life again. It just doesn't happen unless, of course, unless, of course, the 
the miraculous finger of God is at work. And uh, when we look at the other account of this particular teaching from Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew expands a little bit, uh, gives more of what Jesus actually said. Uh, Could you come with me to Matthew chapter 12 for a moment? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, let's pick it up at verse 38 on page 690. It says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Sound familiar? He answered, A wicked and and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So you see that that Jesus has promised that no sign shall be given but the sign of Jonah that he will give that sign. And so what is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah really is the resurrection, that uh, uh, Jesus would be three days three in, the, in, the, in the depths of the earth and that he would rise from the dead. And so it's this miracle of Jonah in the belly of the fish is the same sign that Jesus promises that he will give to this wicked generation. Actually, it will be a better sign because Jesus uh, actually did not survive crucifixion. He did die, but he was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest sign. Uh, Listen to what um, the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when... uh, Uh, people were gathered together. Listen to what Peter said about uh, the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, uh, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. That is, The miracles which Jesus did were a sign of who he is, that he was being accredited by those signs. When you see the the lame walking, the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, you know that Messiah has arrived. They are signs which point to who Jesus is. And then Peter goes on to say, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But death was not the end for for Jesus. For he goes on to say, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That is the sign of Jonah, the resurrection from the dead. And then in verse 36, Peter goes on to say that by the resurrection that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. So the the issue here is this. 
the great evidence of the work of God, the great evidence of the saving work of God and the very best reason for anybody to turn to God is the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus. Now the crowds around Jesus, they have already witnessed these signs and miracles which Peter says accredited Jesus to them. They'd already seen uh, what God had been doing through Jesus and yet their response was, give us another sign or uh, he's just doing this by the work of Satan. They had seen the evidence. In the Old Testament, even Gentiles, people who were not, did not have the advantage of the Jews, even Gentiles turned to God in faith on the basis of much lesser signs than what people saw in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in Luke 11, gives two examples. First of all, he talks about the Queen of the South, and we pick that up in verse 31. In verse 31, he says to these people around him, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now one greater than Solomon is here. Now, Israel at the time of Solomon was really at its zenith. Uh, it was all of the blessings. Uh, the, the land was from the Euphrates River across to the, to the sea. They, there was peace, there was prosperity, there was, there was great wealth. And the picture I like of that era in Israel's history was where it says that every man sat under his own fig tree. It's a picture of, you know, put that in Australian terms, it's every man's sitting under his umbrella by his swimming pool and relaxing. You know, it was peace and everything was great. And Solomon's court was just fantastic. He had great wealth and many servants and it was tremendous. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we have recorded for us the visit to Solomon by the Queen of Sheba. Now, she's always struck me as being a mysterious person, uh, Jesus here describes her as being the queen of the south. And the reason for that is the geographical location of Sheba. Uh, it's, uh, it's in the southernmost point of, the, of Arabia. Um, these days it's Yemen. Anyone ever been to Yemen? Uh, you know, it's, that's, that's the southernmost point of, of Arabia. And uh, that's why she's the queen of the south. Sometimes she's associated with Ethiopia. Have you come across that? The queen of Ethiopia. Right? I think to myself that, you know, the Middle East and, you know, Ethiopia are a long way apart, but no, it's not true, because Ethiopia is close to the eastern border of Africa. These days there's a sliver of land called Djibouti that's uh, between Ethiopia and the coast. But at that point, the Red Sea is at its most narrowest and it's only 25 kilometres across to Arabia, to Yemen. So from 
Sheba to Ethiopia, it's just a 25 kilometre boat trip and you can understand how it is that she would have expanded her uh, kingdom uh, into that part of Africa. In fact, uh, I read just recently that they're planning to build a, a bridge across it so you'd be able to drive from Yemen to Ethiopia. You may not necessarily want to, but uh, <coughs> they're going to <coughs> build that bridge. So that's, that's a little bit of background on the Queen of the, the Queen of Sheba and why Jesus refers to here as the Queen of the South because that was the southernmost point that uh, people uh, would typically know about. When Sheba visited Solomon, she saw his kingdom, she saw his, his palace, his court, she experienced his wisdom and in 1 Kings chapter 10 we are told that she was overwhelmed overwhelmed listen to her response praise be to the lord to yahweh your god who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of israel because of yahweh's eternal love for israel he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness now what do you think about that response you know, out of 10, what would you give it? I'd give it 10 out of 10. That's a great response. That's a response of acknowledging uh, the, the, the greatness of God expressed through what she saw in Solomon and, putting, and praising him uh, for that. But now, says Jesus, one who is greater than Solomon is here. Now, you and I, we might get impressed when we meet someone if they're very wealthy and very wise and so on. But what if you were to meet someone who could stop a storm, who could cause a blind person to see, who could cause a deaf person to hear, who could cause a lame person to get up and walk? What if we were to meet someone who could raise the dead? who had authority over Satan. It's a different level, isn't it? It's a completely different realm. And so if the Gentile queen, having met Solomon, if she responded in faith and in praise, then how much more should these Jewish people have responded to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? and the signs that God was giving that pointed to him. How much more? Jesus' second example is the people of Nineveh. Verse 32, let me read it. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah... And now, one greater than Jonah is here. Now, they may have known, they may have heard of Jonah's experience with the fish. Uh, in Jonah chapter 3, he went to Nineveh, he warned them of the judgment of God and their need to repent. And you know, these days people say, well, it's, you really shouldn't be preaching on sin and judgment and repentance it's that's that's you know it's all very negative stuff you're not going to attract people to god by 
preaching this kind of stuff. You need to tell people what God can give to them, how God can improve their lives. But guess what happened in Nineveh? At the preaching of Jonah, the king issued a decree. And we read about it in Jonah chapter 3. Let me read it for you. This is a proclamation from the king of Nineveh, an Assyrian, where he writes, this is the proclamation um, by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. So he's calling on a fast. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Let's repent. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. God might forgive us. How about that? How would you describe that kind of response? What, what, how would you rate it out of 10? It's 10 out of 10, isn't it? It's a great response. But now, says Jesus, one who is greater than Jonah is here. And what is their response? How about another sign from heaven? Then we might believe. It's shameful. It is utterly shameful. In, and that's, what, that's the point that Jesus is making here because did you notice what he said about the judgment? In, in verses 31 and 32, on that great day when Jesus returns in judgment, when on the, at the general resurrection, when we are all raised, who is it who will condemn those people who face-to-face rejected Jesus. Who is it who will condemn them? What does it say in verses 31 and verse 32? Verse 31, who will condemn them? It will be the Queen of the South. Verse 32, it will be the men of Nineveh. How about that? Now, we, we know that Christ is the judge, but there are um, passages, there are verses in the Bible which help us to see that there is in some sense that we who are in Christ, as those Old Testament people would be because their sins are covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it seems that there is some sense in which those who are in Christ do have a role in the judgment. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us very much about this, but in passages such as this one, um, also in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, you remember that passage uh, that uh, there were people in the Corinthian church who were in dispute against one another and they were taking each other to the secular magistrates. They were taking each other to court. They were serving court summonses on one another. And Paul is saying, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. If you've got a dispute... The church can figure that out. Uh, Surely the church, surely even the least amongst you is wise enough to be able to work out these matters. And he backs up that point in verses 2 and 3 by saying, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So 
there is that sense that somehow we play a, a role in the judgment. But the, the Bible doesn't elaborate on that, so it's still a little bit of a mystery as to how that uh, will work out. But Jesus is making a different point here, or a related point. The point that Jesus is making is how shameful this is. How shameful that on that day the wicked yet repentant Assyrians of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba, modern-day Yemen, will be there actually justly pointing the accusing finger of judgment against people who not only had all of the background of the, the, the law, the prophets, the covenants, but at, who have actually seen the miracles that Jesus was performing and had met Jesus. How shameful that repentant Assyrians and the Queen of Sheba should actually be on the right side and they're on the wrong side on the day of judgment. That's a warning. It's a real warning uh, to repent, to turn to Jesus. Because the reality is that a person can see, but yet at the same time not see. And I think that this is the point that Jesus is making in the, in the next section, which is verses 33 to 36. In your NIVs it's titled, uh, The Lamp of the Body. Uh, and there is a sense in which our eyes, uh, meta metaphorically, are a lamp for our bodies. They're a lamp for our lives. And if our eyes are good, then our lives will be full of light. If our eyes are bad, then we're living in darkness. It's a spiritual issue. I met a pastor once who told me that he no longer preached the gospel. Most of the time they don't tell you that, even though they're not preaching the gospel. But this guy said, no, no, I, I no longer preach the gospel because he said it doesn't work. So I preached the gospel for so many years and church didn't grow particularly fast. So uh, now he said, instead, uh, I do miracles. I pr promise people that they come to church and they get healed and guess what his church had grown but the defining miracle that which is the basis for people to become Christians has already happened uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Paul says Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified Later on in uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day that he was raised from the dead. The resurrection, the sign of Jonah, is of first importance. First importance. And he goes on to say that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile because you're still in your sins. Might as well go out and eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. 
There is no greater sign needed than the resurrection. For if Christ has been raised from the dead, which I assert, the scriptures assert that he has, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then what are the implications of that? Well, first of all, it means that every claim that he made about himself is true. So you need to take him seriously. It means that his sacrifice for your sin has been deemed to be acceptable by God the Father, that the debt has been cleared. That's why he's been raised from the dead. No longer does he need to suffer because he's paid the penalty. It means that he is now with the Father in heaven. It means that he is our judge, our saviour and our Lord. This is the important miracle. But a non-Christian might still say, I still want to see a sign. Show me a sign. Let me see a miracle and then I'll believe. That may come from a place of unbelief. And if it comes from a place of unbelief, then it doesn't matter what miracle you're going to perform. Uh, Jesus at another place says that even if a man should come back from the dead, (laughs) they're still not going to believe. But it may also come from someone who is genuinely seeking. And if that were the case, how would you respond to such a friend? We don't need to take them to a so-called miracle meeting, do we? Because we can share with them that which is the greatest miracle of all. Why would we settle for anything less than the resurrection of Jesus? So I'd want to tell people about the resurrection. It's an unrepeatable miracle. It doesn't need to be repeated. And I'd want to encourage people to be reading through a gospel for themselves. Look at the signs and the miracles which accredited Jesus to people and then look at that greatest sign to which it all points, his resurrection. Sometimes it's even useful for us to offer to, uh, to even uh, meet with our friends and uh, to read through a passage, to read through a gospel with them so that they can, um, we can talk to them about who Jesus is and what he's done in terms of his resurrection. Now that may not be exciting. People say, no, 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 I just want to see a miracle. <laughs> well... But for those who have got spiritual eyes, like the Queen of the South, like the men of Nineveh, it will actually lead to trust, repentance, salvation and praise to God. Uh, the Apostle Paul draws these, the two issues of this passage together, the issues of the resurrection and spiritual eyes, in a prayer that he prays for the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1. I've printed that for you on your service sheets on the, sec- on the back page. I'm just going to read that and uh, we'll <clears throat> this will <clears throat> round off the talk for this morning. Let's have a look at this. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 where Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
What is his power, by the way? What is his incomparably great power? Well, that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, the sign of Jonah, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, much greater than Solomon, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. Paul's prayer is that we will have spiritual eyes, that the eyes of our hearts would be, would be healthy, that we would be able to see that in the resurrection of Jesus that we now have that which is ultimately of the greatest value, the glorious inheritance of, our, of God's holy people. And it comes through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the sign, folks. Uh, let's not settle for anything less. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We thank you for all that it accomplishes and all that it shows to us about Jesus. We pray that this great uh, news of the resurrection would be shared amongst many people. We pray for ourselves, Lord God, that we wouldn't crave after new and fresh and seemingly exciting signs of your existence and your work in the world. For such signs would be far less than the, this great and unrepeatable sign that's already been given. Help us, Lord God, even when we're going through times of doubt, to, to look back to the resurrection of Jesus and to find uh, the, the hope and the strength and the encouragement that comes from the reality of all that it is and all that it achieves for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.